Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the 229-202 vote today in the House to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress, in which nine Republicans joined with the Democratic majority. Joining us is John Dean, who was legal counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal, and his Senate testimony helped lead to Nixon's resignation. Currently a regular political and legal commentator on CNN, he is the New York Times best-selling author of Blind Ambition, Broken Government, Conservatives Without Conscience, Worse Than Watergate, and his latest book, co-authored with Bob Altemeyer, is Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. We'll discuss the likelihood that Bannon is, as John Dean said on CNN, quote, up to his eyeballs in the January 6th riot, and that, quote, I think he could lead to Trump or those closest to Trump. And I do believe that the indications are that Trump is much more involved in this whole thing than we think he was. We'll look into what went on in the war room Bannon set up in the Willard Hotel in Washington on January the 5th, where he was joined by a top White House aide and Rudy Giuliani in conversation with Trump, who was in the White House plotting to have Vice President Pence not certify Biden's electoral victory. Then following Wednesday's vote in the Senate, in which the Republicans voted unanimously against Joe Manchin's Freedom to Vote Act, which he tried to get them to accept in the spirit of bipartisanship, we will speak with Alexander Kesar, a professor of history and social policy at Harvard's Kennedy School and author of The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He joins us to discuss the next steps the Senate Democrats might take as time is running out to check the rampant Republican voter suppression underway. Then finally, we will speak with Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent at The Week, who was the co-host of the At Left Anchor podcast and the author of the forthcoming book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. He joins us to discuss his latest article at The Week, Democrats' month of dithering are sandbagging Biden's popularity. And since voters respect decisive leadership, what can be done to get Senators Manchin and Cinema to understand neither of them is President of the United States? And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now are John Dean, who was legal counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal, and his Senate testimony helped lead to Nixon's resignation. Currently, he's a regular political and legal commentator on CNN, and he is the New York Times bestselling author of Blind Ambition, Broken Government, Conservatives Without Conscience, Worse Than Watergate, and his latest book, co-authored with Bob Altemeyer, is Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Dean. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks, John. And you've, on CNN, suggested that 
you think that uh, Steve Bannon could be up to his eyeballs in the January 6th riot and that he would be a vital witness. And you also went on to say, I think he could lead to Trump or those closest to Trump. And I do believe that the indications are that Trump is much more involved in this whole thing than we think he was. So the vote was taken in the House today, 229 to 202 votes, to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress, in which nine Republicans joined with the Democratic majority. So the die is cast, is it not? Well, the Department of Justice has to decide what they're going to do with this. The the language of the statute, it's an old, old statute. It was written in 1857, which is shows uh, the last time they've given serious consideration to how they should enforce their subpoenas. Um, the statute says that they, the, the U.S. attorney shall take it to a grand jury. Um, but the Department of Justice has issued a number of memos over the years that says they really have discretion as to whether they take it to a grand jury or not. So that's the first hurdle. Second hurdle is they take it to a grand jury. Theoretically, a grand jury could say, oh, we don't think this is criminal. Uh, That would be unlikely because grand juries tend to follow what the prosecutors ask of them, uh, but not impossible. But let's say he is indicted. We don't know what his defenses might be, anything from he was relying on the advice of counsel, which would be terrible advice and probably would make counsel a co-conspirator <laughs> rather than a, than a sound advisor uh, to the, some technical things that uh, have to do with the resolution that created the, uh, the January, January 6th committee. So, the, you know, it, it can get protracted, but I think if justice does go, and I can't imagine what rationale they would not, uh, it it would be in the, within the next uh, four or five months we could have an answer to this. But could it happen sooner if Merrick Garland gets involved? Obviously, if the D.C. acting attorney general takes it on and go, takes it to a grand jury, that takes time. The attorney general Merrick Garland was asked about it in testimony, and he said that they would look into it. And he obviously well, we, we, have, we have for him. Uh, Could you say that again? Sorry, you broke up. The U.S. attorney works for the attorney general uh, and is under his jurisdiction. The U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, to whom it is referred, is not an independent prosecutor. He's a part of the Department of Justice. So it will be resolved at the Department of Justice. Now, I I think that uh, Merrick Garland was pretty unequivocal today uh, he just didn't want to. He just said, "We will take this in. We'll study the facts and apply the law." Uh, so he really didn't say anything uh, as to what his disposition is with it. The Department of Justice and the courts do not like congressional contempt proceedings or any of the, They consider them political issues that should be resolved by the parties. Clearly, the committee wants the testimony of Bannon more than it wants to have him convicted. Uh, So there may be some effort still to get him to cooperate uh, before this thing is is criminally prosecuted. But as I say, I think I think that the department has to move expeditiously. They can't they can't let Bannon prevail by delay. uh, And I think they will. 
And again, I'm speaking with John Dean, who was legal counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal, and his Senate testimony helped lead to Nixon's resignation. Currently, he's a regular political and legal commentator on CNN, and he is the New York Times bestselling author of Blind Ambition, Broken Government, Conservatives Without Conscience, Worse Than Watergate, and his latest book, co-authored with Bob Altemeyer, is Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. Well, in the uh, debate that preceded it, where you had Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger really very clearly laying it all out. In fact, Liz Cheney quoted what Bannon said on his war room broadcast on that day before when he tweeted out that all hell is going to break loose tomorrow and then went on to say that it would be extraordinarily different than what most Americans expect. And then he told his followers to strap in using all of those kind of military terms. So, But also what happened on that same day, the day before January the 6th, January the 5th, there was a war room that Bannon had set up in the Willard Hotel where he was meeting with the top White House aide uh, along with Rudy Giuliani, and they were in phone conversations with Trump during that day. My understanding also, John Dean, is that that day, wasn't that the day when Trump himself was plotting and leaning on Vice President Pence not to certify the Biden victory? That's correct. And your recitation of the of the facts are why I said on CNN that I thought Bannon could uh, tell us a lot, that he's much more deeply involved, as is likely Trump, uh, than, than we know. And since they were in communication, I think that makes this very important testimony. Uh, you know, but there are other people that uh, they'll probably get to testify about what Trump did or didn't do. So I, you know, I don't think Bannon is the only one that has that information, but I, I certainly think he's one. So, just to touch on that White House meeting, was that the was John Eastman at that meeting as well? Was that when he floated that completely unconstitutional notion, giving them justification for what they were doing in this in what was in effect a coup attempt? According to Woodward and Bob Costa in their book Peril. At some point in that day, on the 5th, Eastman was brought in while Pence was there and, and made his case, wearing the credentials of, of a conservative constitutional law expert, spouting things that have no relationship to any conservative interpretation of the Constitution, and telling Pence what he could, could do and really basing on, on false information that states had had uh, contested uh, electoral uh, panels that have been submitted, things that just weren't, were just totally false. So uh, he obviously is, is, is going to be a witness at some point too, Eastman. And it's surprising that um, at least the Federalists did sort of demote him, I believe, but the, the Claremont Institute have been defending him. So I Well, would be I tweeted su- the other day a, uh, a report, a really well-done essay on the Claremont Institute, which has become the intellectual home for Trumpism. They're trying to put some sort of weight into all this authoritarianism that Trump pumps out, this personality cult. And their chief insurrectionist is John Eastman. So he's, he's not been marched out of there yet. Some 
people like Chapman Law School don't want any part of him. That's understandable. Uh, Claremont seems to be embracing him, the Claremont Institute, for reasons that are mystifying, but uh, maybe he helps them raise money. Well, it's amazing that he could be uh, such a clear insurrectionist, could be still accepted in polite society. But of course, times have changed, and within the Republican Party, it is now Donald Trump's party, and you wrote about this shift in conservatives without conscience. So it's a long, this is not your father's or grandfather's GOP anymore. And, and, it's, uh, not, and it's not polite society. <laughs> well, what then did you make of the handful of Republicans today that voted with the Democrats in the 229 to 202 vote? That Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, Nancy Mace, who I believe worked for Trump, Fred Upton, Peter Meyer, John Coutco, Brian Fitzpatrick, Anthony Gonzalez, and uh, Jamie Herrera Butler. By the way, Representative Greg Pence, the brother of former Vice President Pence, did not vote. No vote at all. Right. Interesting. Uh, uh, well, it, it, show, it shows that a few Republicans uh, still have vertebrae, that they actually have a spine enough to stand up and do what is right. Well... At this point, though, what's your predictions here in terms of where this is heading? Because obviously the Republicans today, although they didn't have any of their important leaders speak, in fact, I think their main people that were speaking were the ones that had been rejected by Nancy Pelosi on the select committee panel. I mean, the argument that Liz Cheney was making is that you guys were attacked along with me. We were attacked. You know, it's extraordinary to think, to sit, to watch them not step up here and defend their institution. Yeah, and what's happening, I found a wonderful essay by Sean Willits, who's a Princeton-based historian who has studied in depth uh, the, the political movements in this country. And his essay... On, on tyranny of the minority from Calhoun to Trump. Uh, I retweeted it because it's so good. It's a, it's a little wonky, yes, but you have a highly intellectual audience, so they should go dig out my, my tweet and, and read that uh, rather lengthy analysis of what really this, where this all fits in our history. And it's not totally unusual. So there is, there are some patterns here that are are not inconsistent with earlier patterns, and it's not pretty, uh, but it's a good way to understand it. Well, John, just a quick prediction on your part, since it's not going to happen quite so quickly. Whether now that Bannon has been held in criminal contempt of the Congress, how long before we'll see him in our, an orange jumpsuit? Good question. I I don't really know the answer to that, and it would I don't have a crystal ball. So let's see if he gets indicted first. And I don't think he has a very strong defense, but one never knows. One never knows. I think there's. I think there are going to be a lot more witnesses, and he's going to. Um, he's going to be forced to testify. They may immunize him. Sure, but I think he's also protecting Trump because, after all, Trump oh, pardoned him. Of course he him. is. I mean, Trump he pardoned is. him. Yeah. Of course he is. Well, John, I thank you again for joining us. Thanks again. 
And I've been speaking with John Dean, who was legal counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal, and his Senate testimony helped lead to Nixon's resignation. Currently, he is a regular political and legal commentator on CNN, and he is the New York Times bestselling author of Blind Ambition, Broken Government, Conservatives Without Conscience, Worse Than Watergate, and his latest book, co-authored with Bob Altemeyer, is Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking into Wednesday's vote in the Senate in which Republicans voted unanimously against Joe Manchin's Freedom to Act vote, which he tried to get them to accept in the spirit of bipartisanship. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Kaiser, who's a professor of history and social policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where his current research interests include election reform, the history of democracies, and the history of poverty. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and previously he chaired the Social Science Research Council National's Research Commission on Voting and Elections. And his latest book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Kesa. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Alex. And what did you make of the vote yesterday in the Senate on... Joe Manchin's bill, uh, which I guess was hardly a surprise, right? No, it was hardly a surprise. It was it was one of these dramas that had been predicted in detail for many weeks, so that the outcome was not a surprise. That said, if you take several steps backward, it seems to me, in the, you know, in the broad scheme of things, uh, some you know, surprising, even astonishing that there were no Republicans, including people like Mitt Romney um, and Lisa Murkowski, who voted in favor of even having a discussion or a debate about this legislation. Um, I mean, that in this, again, in in a larger perspective, that is surprising and even shocking. Well, something clearly happened between the time that the Voting Rights Act was last voted on by the Senate and upheld by unanimous vote, 98 to 0. This was right. under George Bush Sr. And then you go fast forward to today and you've got somebody like Adam Kinziger, who's a, who's a, you know, a moderate Republican who's joined in the, the January 6th uh, special investigation, a House Select Committee investigation into January the 6th. And he's, you know, widely respected, but he's against the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. He's, he, he would have voted along with uh, Mitt Romney. So what happened, do you think, Alex? Basically, I think that Republicans have become increasingly frightened about elections um, and their outcomes, and that they have increasingly embraced not, you know, not only the cult-like embrace of Trump and of different facets of Trumpism, but 
they seem to have rejected, and I think this is also a bit with the aid of the Supreme Court, they have rejected the notion that the federal government has any particular role to play with respect to voting rights. Uh, they, you know, in effect, yes, the Senate did pass that, you know, the Renewal of Voting Rights Act in uh, 2006, although there is some reason to think that the unanimous vote was also designed to, uh, on the part of Republicans that they voted for it as a way of suggesting that it wasn't getting serious consideration. But in effect, the, you know, the Supreme Court overturned the key aspects of the voting right law, signaling that it was going to give a much more skeptical look at any interventions by the federal government in matters affecting democracy. Well, that leads me to suggest that there's a certain tactic going on here with the Republicans, and particularly with Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell doesn't want, he knows that if you overturn Roe v. Wade, it'll be unpopular. So better that the Supreme Court does it, right? Is that the same thinking there? Better that the Supreme Court does unpopular things like undo voting rights? Well, I, th- I, th- I think that there, there, is, there is that tactic, although in this case, obviously, what they've done is to try to prevent it from, or pre- prevent anything about federal legislation from getting to the courts. In effect, what that does then is to leave the challenges to these state laws to the courts so that the various state laws that are now doing strange things with electoral processes will go to the courts and perhaps initially, eventually to the Supreme Court. And then it will be up to the Supreme Court to decide whether or not uh, piecemeal those uh, new restrictions and these new processes uh, that are in place are constitutional. Well, back to the vote on uh, Wednesday in the Senate on Joe Manchin's Freedom to Vote Act, which was 50-50, and then for procedural regions, Chuck Schumer changed his vote to a nay so that they could revisit it. And Senator Amy Klobuchar, who was one of the main sponsors, along with Joe Manchin of this bill, said, we will continue to fight. We must restore the Senate so we can work together in the way the founders intended to take on the challenges facing our democracy. Now, that seems like a pretty straightforward hint, isn't it, that they want to do something about the filibuster? I think so. And I think that, you know, Klobuchar and, and others in the Senate, again, they were not surprised by the vote yesterday. They let this proceed to a vote and indeed engaged in this compromise with with Senator Manchin in the assumption that Republicans would not support it and thus that this would lead to a a vote on whether or not to, I'm, I don't think they're talking about completely suspending the filibuster, but carving out an exception or two um, to the filibuster. And I think that's where we are. And, you know, I, it's been notable that the rhetoric coming from leading senators, leading Democratic senators, has focused on maintaining or restoring the Senate as a great deliberative body, etc. And that is a reasonable point, and it may have uh, it may have some appeal to Manchin and cinema. 
And again, I'm speaking with Alexander Kezo, Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where his current research interests include election reform, the history of democracies, and the history of poverty. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and previously he chaired the Social Science Research Council's National Research Commission on Voting and Elections. And his latest book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? So Schumer then, of course, said yesterday that he promised he would bring the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act up for a vote next week in the Senate, which would, of course, restore critical provisions in the Voting Rights Act. So is that another tactic in just putting the Republicans on the record? Is that what's going on here? Yes, I think I think that that's exactly what's going on here. I, I do Although there have been hints that a couple of Republican senators might approve that law, I doubt that any will. And certainly there will not be 10 who will go along with opening up debate on the subject. Although, you know, I could be surprised. They could decide to permit a debate in part to try to preserve the filibuster. But I think that's not going to happen. I think this is, you know, this is a strategy on the part of Schumer and other Democrats to have the Republicans refuse to discuss either of these major bills dealing with voting rights. Um, and then they can turn to trying to carve out some, a change to the filibuster for matters that have to do with fundamental rights, such as voting rights. I, that's the way I see this headed. So I talked to some former Senate staffers, and they suggested that Schumer may have decided that he wants to keep Manchin on board for the big $3.5 trillion infrastructure reconciliation vote, which has now been whittled down to, I think, Manchin now. He said he'll only accept $1.5 trillion, and then apparently now he's compromised with $1.75 trillion. So let's assume it's somewhere around $2 trillion if they ever, ever agree. Is that what's going on, that Schumer has prioritized getting this infrastructure reconciliation bill over the voting rights? If that's the case, I don't see how that makes any sense. Because isn't this existential for the Democrats? If they don't deal with voting rights and stop this multi-layered onslaught against voting that the Republicans have in various state legislatures around the country, they're going to lose in 2022 and in 2024, and we're heading towards a one-party state. I agree with you on, on this, Ian. I mean, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I'm, I'm not privy to the deliberations in the Senate leadership about what they're trying to do. They certainly want to keep Manchin on board to get that bill passed. Uh, I, I don't know what the exact sequence of votes are that are being planned um, now, but I, um, I suspect that what Schumer would like is the ideal outcome is to get something in this reconciliation bill passed, and then also the infrastructure bill will then uh, will then get acted on by the House and then proceed to deal with the filibuster thereafter. I, I suspect that's the strategy, but I, I don't have enough inside baseball knowledge to know. On the, on the broader point of the voting rights, the two pieces of voting rights legislation and the issue of voting rights being fundamental, being critical to the future of the Democratic Party and fundamental to the democracy of the country. I completely agree with you. These are as or more important than any pieces of legislation that have come up in recent years or even recent decades. So to the notion that some 
Democrats are suggesting that all we have to do is just get a lot more people to vote. You know, that there's about 80 million people that didn't vote and don't vote. And I'm wondering whether that's an incredibly flawed argument. There's this term, low information voters. And what happens in our elections is that billions of dollars are spent on media and saturating the airwaves to get these politicians elected, you know, particularly in presidential elections. And only in the last few days before the the vote do these low-information voters suddenly pay attention. So all that money that's spent prior to that seems like it's been wasted. And then if your fate depends upon these low-information voters who haven't been paying attention, you're in trouble because they're not exactly the sharpest tools in the toolbox. So the idea that there are 80 million people out there that don't vote and you need to bring them in, I'd be worried that these people are the least engaged and therefore the least educated. I don't mean to sound elitist, but these are fundamental facts. And clearly what's happened to the Republican Party is that they found a way to get a lot of these low information voters out to join in the Trump coalition, which is now the Republican Party is is now becoming less of a party of the Chamber of Commerce and more of a party of the alienated, angry, white, working class voter. Well, I'd say say two things in response to that, Ian. Um, The first is that I think it's unrealistic for the Democrats or in some sense for any party to think that it can bring in new voters, including a lot of low information voters, suddenly when an election is approaching. Uh, The strategy would have to be to be reaching out, contacting people, talking to them, organizing them, in effect, in the years between elections. I mean, if if you really want to adopt that strategy, and I don't see them doing that, I think that that's a strategy which might perhaps work. I think that the current strategy, I'm not so optimistic about. That said, we also do know that turnout tends to go up when people think there really is a difference between the candidates. I mean, that's, you know, that's really what we saw in 2020. And and when they think that there really will be consequences. And, you know, I think that that will remain true in 2022 and 2024, that people from, you know, of all different perspectives, do think that it really will matter if Congress is in the hands of Democrats or Republicans. So that that might keep turnout somewhat up and it might keep it, it might give some uh, reality, some salience to this strategy of trying to bring out more voters. But the other factor, you know, I think is a more practical factor in what keeps voting numbers down in this country, which the U.S. is pretty unique in among the lowest turnouts in the, amongst the democracies, that the other democracies tend to have voting over the weekend. They make it easier so that people can vote when they're not working. And you hear so many reports of, of people not being able to go to, to vote and not being able to leave their workplace and quite often the their bosses, who tend to be Republican, don't want them to vote at any rate. So is that a big factor? And that's, I think, one of the better things about the Mansion Bill, the Freedom to Vote Act, is that they plan on making a voting day a federal holiday. Right. And I, I think that that is an issue. Um, 
I don't think we really know, you know, percentage wise in terms of turnout, how much difference that will make. But will it make a difference? Yes, absolutely. And one might remember that um, in the wake of the 2000 election, there was a, uh, a federal commission. I think it was actually called the National Commission on Federal Election Reform, chaired by former presidents Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. And they had discussions of, of precisely this issue. They, they were also talking about, um, what, you know, in their deliberations um, about having elections on Sundays. But then there was this, um, the response from those who didn't want this said, well, you know, we are, we are a Christian nation, people go to church. Uh, it was pretty easy to point out that there were many uh, Christian nations that did vote on Sunday and it didn't seem to damage, damage religious practices in any serious way. And then there was discussion of having uh, election day be on Veterans Day. And that was opposed on the grounds that veterans groups would feel that people were no longer paying close attention uh, to a holiday dedicated to them. You know, I do think it matters that we have election day on working days. You know, many people have far less flexible daily schedules than I do as a university professor. And it keep, does keep people from voting. And if you, uh, so it's, you know, it, it, most other countries in the world know this. There's no reason for us uh, not to, to make election day a holiday. So just in closing, then, if you did make, if the mansion bill were to pass, and they do, they have to do a carve-out to the filibuster for it, and we're staying tuned to see whether that's, in fact, what is going to happen in the next few weeks, and that, that these votes that are taking place are ways to put the Republicans on the record to show that show both mansion and cinema the folly of this notion of bipartisanship, which I'm surprised they haven't been able to figure that one out already. Um, so... If that's going on and you pass the Mansion Freedom to Vote Act and then voting becomes a public holiday on voting day on Tuesday, then would the states then all go along with that? In other words, I remember there was a lot of resistance amongst the states to the Martin Luther King holiday. Right. The states would have to go along with it for federal elections because Congress does have uh, the right to determine the date, time, and place of, of, of federal elections. And then probably they'd go along with it for state elections as well, simply for, because it's more convenient. So I think that there, there might be some grumbling in the states, but um, I think it would happen. I don't think there's any question about that. Well, we'll have to stay tuned, and uh, I thank you for joining us, Alexander well, thank you for inviting me. And yes, indeed, we will have to stay tuned. The next several weeks uh, uh, will lead to an outcome on these issues that will be very consequential, however it goes. Well, again, I've been speaking with Alexander Kayser, who's a professor of history and social policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, where his current research interests include election reform, the history of democracies, and the history of poverty. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and previously he chaired the Social Science Research Council's National Research Commission on Voting and Elections. And his latest book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how months of dithering are sandbagging Biden's popularity 
And since voters respect decisive leadership, what can be done to get Senators Manchin and Cinema to understand neither of them is President of the United States? Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up Broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent at The Week, who is the co-host of the At Left Anchor podcast and the author of the forthcoming book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The Week is Democrats' Months of Dithering are Sandbagging Biden's Popularity. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And we're just learning on Thursday that although the Democrats were hoping to wrap up these negotiations over the size of the infrastructure reconciliation package, which has been reduced down from $3.5 trillion, uh, at least to $2 trillion or below, those hopes were dashed when Thursday Joe Manchin said that it's not going to happen anytime soon. The negotiations will continue. So more dithering. Yeah. More dithering, it seems to be on the agenda. I mean, it does seem like over the last couple of uh, the last couple of days, they've actually started to talk specifics uh, for the very first time. Um, you know, if, if you recall, this this whole mess was because the mansion and a, and a few of the other moderates in the Senate, they insisted that they wanted a bipartisan infrastructure bill so that they could prove their, you know, bipartisan bona fides or whatever. And then we would do a reconciliation bill after that. And then they would pass them both through the you know the house and the senate at the same time and the both to biden at the same time so that you know nobody could sort of renege on the other party and after that happened after the bipartisan bill was negotiated then mansion and cinema particularly they reneged on the deal and they started trying to force through the uh, bipartisan bill so that they could vote for it and then vote against reconciliation not do it at all and you know that led to a high stakes standoff where, you know, they're trying to force the vote on the uh, infrastructure thing, like towards the end of September. And then that didn't work because the progressives, uh, you know, were going to vote against it. And, you know, so finally, after seven months, we're doing what we should have done from the very beginning and just have the whole party sit down and be like, okay, what is, what can everyone agree on? You got your bipartisan infrastructure thing you want, the reconciliation thing that you want. Like, let's, you know, let's trade some horses and see what we we can agree on. This could have been, you know, I mean, in a functioning government, this could have been ironed out in like an afternoon, you know, a week at the outside. I mean, it's a big plan, but it's not that big. You know, like these are pretty elementary programs by a European standard. And yet we spent so much time on this. And I, you know, who knows what whether it will be passed uh, in the next uh, month or ever. You know, it's because it's it seems like, you know, the kind of fundamentals of, of like political dynamics are, are kind of falling apart 
in this Congress. Well, as your article of the week says, uh, Democrats' months of dithering are sandbagging Biden's popularity. The subheading is, voters respect decisive leadership. Democrats are flailing. It's not just that voters respect decisive leadership, and that means the president. I think a lot of them expect it too, don't they? Yeah, they they want it. I mean, they need it. You know, we're still in the midst of this pandemic, the worst pandemic in a century. Biden's been pretty slow to, like, you know, put forward aggressive stuff on that. Um, You know, the height of his popularity, if you look at the 538 polling average, was in late March, right after they passed, you know, the American Rescue Plan, another big aggressive thing to try to deal with the pandemic, you know, and you had a bunch of really popular stuff in there, uh, the $1,400 checks that went to most people, um, you know, expansion of unemployment benefits. These, you know, it was it was popular stuff, but it was also like we're doing something. We're 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 confident. We're aggressive. We have a vision for the country. We're not going to screw around. You know, just sort of like trying to figure out what we can agree on for months and months. I mean, it did take them a while to pass that, but not seven months. And then you know, you fast forward. We've had seven months of dithering and sort of going around in circles. You know, probably half of it where Mansion and Cinema like. They said, no, we won't vote for this. No, we won't say why. And you're just sort of like, you know, what What do you even do with that? You know, the, how can you negotiate with someone who won't say what their preferences is? At one point, Biden, or sorry, a mansion was saying, you know, I'm going to give you one of the three uh, child welfare things that you've got. So you got to pick one. And it's like, what? You know, what, what kind of a preference is this? It's like, I don't really care what child thing is. We just don't want you know, more than one of them. And, you know, I think it, it, it indicates to the average person, the Democrats, they don't know what they're doing. They're weak. They're timid. They're feckless. And like sitting around just eating up new cycle after new cycle about how the party can't agree on anything. And it's just sort of slowly trimming down its ambition, like over and over and over again. It just, it makes them look completely pathetic and helpless, you know, and, at the end of the day, if you pass something that's really terrible, it's like it would be almost worse than just not passing anything at all, politically speaking, I think, because then it's like, you know, we, we spent half a Congress negotiating with ourselves. And at the end of it, we got like, you know, a nickel for highways and and two cents for Amtrak. It's like, what's the point of this? Why are we electing Democrats if this is what they do with a precious trifecta in, in the Congress and the presidency? And again, I'm speaking with Ryan Cooper, National Correspondent at the Week, who is the co-host of the At Left Anchor podcast and the author of the forthcoming book, How Are We Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article of the week is Democrats' Months of Dithering Are Sandbagging Biden's Popularity. So what I don't understand, Ryan, is why anybody takes these... Not that, first of all, Kirsten Sinema doesn't even talk to the press, so it's not as if... You know what's going on with her. And by the way, today, all five members of her veterans advisory panel quit in disgust and went public with a letter saying she doesn't care about her constituents. She only cares about her donors. So it's quite possible that she's getting a lot of money from these corporate donors because we know she's doing carrying their water. She's doing their bidding. She won't repeal the Trump tax cuts and she won't raise taxes on corporations and wealthy Americans who are doing better than ever. So that's all 
clearly on the record. So she's building a war chest, I think, to run as an independent because the Democratic left in Arizona are going to primary her. I don't think she gives a damn, frankly. I don't think she's motivated by anything except vanity, selfishness, and narcissism. On the other hand, Manchin, of course, whose family are in the coal business, his son runs a coal company, a coal distribution company, and he keeps saying things like he's against all of this spending because he doesn't want to create an entitlement society. Well, what country is this guy living in? I mean, has he not driven the streets of America and seen these homeless encampments? I mean, here in Los Angeles, around, particularly around the VA and Westwood, they're just blocks and blocks of tents of veterans. These are people who served this country, and, and many of them were wounded, uh, and yet they're homeless. This is not an entitlement society. This is a disposable yeah. society where people have disposed of and thrown away like used Kleenex. Yeah, well, I mean, if anyone's entitled, it's the fossil fuel executives, you know, who have profited by, you know, spewing pollution into the air that is, the, you know, all of us in the public have to breathe um, and and uh, then, you know, not paying for the damage that it causes. I was just reading a study uh, today that found that in 2018, fossil fuel pollution in the form of uh, 2.5 micron particulate matter um, just that kind of pollution alone was responsible for 8.7 million premature deaths that year in 2018. That's a fifth of all the deaths in the world. And we have this fairly modest climate agenda in the Biden bill, which is trying to get, you know, slowly transition utilities around the country away from coal, which is already dying, by the way, uh, down by like 62 percent in terms of the power production uh, and the, the utility-scale electricity uh, since 2007, because it's just being beaten on price by natural gas and by renewables, uh, you know, he wants to keep that gravy train flowing. And the result of that is people are going to die. People will die of asthma, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, bronchitis, infections, all these very, you know, secondary uh, health problems caused uh, by, by cold pollution. And what is more entitled than thinking that your your like your business model, which is on its way out, which kills people, which threatens the lives and the livelihoods of the people in West Virginia specifically, which a recent study uh, found that West Virginia is more exposed to flood damage, the residents thereof rather, are more exposed to flood damage than any other state because they all you know most people live in these very narrow valleys where like if there's a you know, a lot of precipitation, the flood comes and there's nowhere to go and there's nowhere to move your house because it's in a really steep valley. You know, you can't, you know, carve it into a cave or whatever. And what's he going to do about that? He's, he's going to make it worse. You know, we're going to keep spewing this filth forever. And so, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, entitlement is we're going to, that we're going to give, uh, we're going to help parents pay for their child expenses. And he says, well, we got to have a work requirement in there, you know, that, that so that poor people basically preventing poor people, you know, a disproportionate share of whom live in West Virginia uh, from getting this benefit. It's like you're out of your mind, man. You know, <laughs> it but ought to why, be. But, it ought but, to be. But, Ryan, why do people take their cinemas and mansions arguments on face value and give them credence? It's obviously a smokescreen for the fact 
that he's in the pocket of, personally, his family are in the coal business. He's in the pocket of the dirty energy lobby and other lobbies as well. And we know that cinema certainly is. She's just bending over backwards to accommodate the big pharma lobby and the uh, and corporate lobbies, and she's the one that's refusing to repeal the Trump tax cuts and make corporations pay their fair share along with wealthy individuals who we know, people like Jeff Bezos, don't pay any taxes at all, the richest guy in the world. Come on. So why do they take their arguments at face value? It's It's absurd. You know, of course they talk about lofty things like fiscal responsibility and and the fear of inflation. But the truth of the matter is they're just plain corrupt. Yeah, I think that's basically right. You know, and and, uh, I mean, it's also worth pointing out on the fundraising front. uh, Cinema raised, I think, like $1.5 million, maybe a couple million dollars last quarter. Uh, That's not very much. Uh, Raphael Warnock raised like $9 million and got almost all of it from small donors. You know, like they've They've innovated a fundraising model, you know, for these committees where if you're if you're in a swing state and the base likes you, you get Mongo cash. And I think cinema is kind of signing her own political death warrant in that respect. But, yeah, you know, as you say, it's like she she likes these donors and she thinks maybe, you know, there's a consulting job ahead of me if I fail to win reelection. And, you know, for some reason that I can't understand, it's 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 regarded as impolite. You know, you have the uh, outlets like uh, Axios or the Punchbowl News or Politico, you know, that view politics as a sort of amusing sporting event. And to to point to to argue that like these um, American politicians are basically like Russian oligarchs, you know, that they are just totally in the pocket of of, a vested interest uh, that that kills people, as I was saying, Um you know, that's like offends American exceptionalism. Our politicians can't be really corrupt because they're American politicians. And to point out, you know, that like the policy effects of these decisions they're making kills people. That's like offensive, you know, and I think it's of a piece with why, um, you know, so many media outlets, they don't really cover what, you know, all this news about the Trump coup and so on, you know, like the memos that are coming out that it was all, you know, like it was all planned. They had a, they had a, a, a way to do it and um, how everything since January 6th has come out uh, made things worse. Well, that, that offends our sense of America's innocence. So let's just ignore it. Let's pretend like it's not happening and that, you know, that'll work until, you know, the constitutional order actually is overthrown and management cinema certainly are not helping out in that regard at all. So what will it take to let, Mansion and Cinema know that they're not president of the United States. Uh, I mean, you know, that's a tough one, um, you know, because they don't have I mean, it's no, zero vote margin in the Senate. And, uh, you know, Biden doesn't have the direct authority over them. But, you know, I, I, I would say in what amounts to, a you know, a national emergency on about seven different fronts, you know, Biden has got a tremendous amount of executive authority. Um, the American Prospect has a, a a great series. You know, it was written before the election, but it's called the Day One Agenda. And it's basically sort of rooting through the U.S. code to find sort of disused powers. You know, like, like Congress over the years has delegated tons of authority to the executive branch. And a lot of it's 
you know, sort of going unused. One of them, one thing, for example, you could cancel almost all student debt just by unilateral action from the president. You know, that wouldn't punish cinema and mansion specifically, but like that's the type of thing that you could do. And I, and I think that, you know, it, if I were Biden, I would start thinking about ways that you could play hardball, you know, with like trying to investigate Manchin's family, you know, his his company specifically, you know, and see if there's any kind of dodgy stuff going on there, um, you know, because this is intolerable that the entire Democratic government could be imperiled because the residents of a state with like 7.5 million people in Arizona and like 1.8 million people or something in West Virginia, like that's going to imperil the entire government agenda of a nation of 330 million. You know, like this just can't stand. And, you know, I, <laughs> it's a tough question, but like clearly, you know, some, it's time to start considering at least drastic measures. Well, Mother Jones is reporting that Manchin has told some of his confidants that he's thinking of running as an independent, as an yeah. um, American independent, or whatever that is. So I guess that's his threat, right? And of course, I mentioned earlier that Cinema is getting all this huge corporate war chest, and she probably will run in 2024 as an independent as well, if she if she doesn't go off and you know run a winery or whatever it is, or yeah, the, she, I mean. Yeah, possibly. I, I'm not too convinced by by that. Either of them would be absolutely toast, I think, as an independent. Maybe not Manchin. He might be able to make it. But Cinema, uh, you know, she would be running against a Democrat and a Republican. She wouldn't get hardly any of either team's votes, I don't think. And I don't think she has really endeared herself into in, uh, to independence very much with her antics, you know, that are like stopping the most popular a piece of legislation the, like the Medicare drug pricing uh, reform, you know, to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices was pulled at nine to one support. That's not a particularly popular move. And, you know, so, I mean, Manchin's move would be to be an independent and then continue to caucus with the Democrats uh, because, you know, if he, if he were to switch parties to Republican, he'd just lose the next primary. He voted to impeach Trump, you know, end of discussion. Um but, well, but then you know, is there another, just in the last couple of minutes then, Ryan, is there another explanation? If cinema alone can prevent the repeal of the Trump tax cuts, that means all the wealthy people in this country will be able to keep not paying taxes, okay? And that's that's worth a lot of money to those people. And then you've got yeah. the fact that she's against the Medicare bargaining down the price of drugs. Well, that's a that's a lot of money to Big Pharma. So she's making money for Big Pharma and the wealthiest Americans and corporate America, hand over fist, zillions of dollars they're saving as long as she stymies any effort to get them to pay their fair share of taxes. So are they going to pay her off? I mean, I my personal suspicion is she thinks that she's convinced herself that she's a political genius and that she's going to be an independent. She's going to be just like John McCain, you know, a real maverick who bucks her party and whatever. I don't think it's going to work. Um, it's not impossible, but I don't, I don't really see it. Um, but I do, I do think if she does lose an election and sort of ends up in the private sector, that there will be some very lucrative offers forthcoming. She'll be sitting on 50 corporate boards or no-show jobs, you know, making 
like a hundred grand a pop, she'll become very wealthy very quickly. And, uh, you know, with the point of not just basically post facto bribes, but as an example to everybody else, if you sell out, then you will become like her with the corporate America will make sure that you're treated very well, you know, and that's just a, <laughs> something not to be illegal, frankly, but it, it's, it certainly would happen, I think, almost unquestionably. Well, Ryan Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And again, I may speak with Ryan Cooper, who's the national correspondent at The Week and the co-host of the At Left Anchor podcast and the author of the forthcoming book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The Week is Democrats' Month of Dithering are Sandbagging Biden's Popularity. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.